When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're going to look at this really big statue, and I know I go a little long today about the statue, but it's kind of fascinating that we have this glimpse of a statue from the ancient world. And I also get um, questioned on whether I'm going to uh, uh, leave this car charging station during the, the podcast. So a little excitement um, here on the streets of Pflugerville, Austin this morning. Reading from the book of Daniel. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given human beings, wherever they live, the wild animals of the field, and the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. After you shall arise, another kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the strength of iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with the clay. As the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Flynn, for reading. And we uh, dive into this dream, knowing a lot of things for the last 2,500 years we've had this dream the people of God in the Old Testament, 
before Jesus was born, had this dream uh, recorded in the book of Daniel. And the people of God now, for the last 2,000 years, known as Christians, have this dream of Daniel, which is very specific to Nebuchadnezzar, the king who is the golden head. We know that in a little bit, the next chapter, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up a giant golden statue of himself on the plain of Shinar. Um, Not where they brew the beer here in Texas, Shinar, Texas, but the plain of Shinar. I always thought that was a funny parallel. But this giant golden statue will be set up that everyone has to worship. And Nebuchadnezzar really did embody the greatness of the kings of the ancient world. On every brick that he built, he used to build, his own name was put on it. And his building projects were vast. He's famous for the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, One of his many, 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 many wives that he married in an alliance with some far away king. Um, She was from a mountainous area. And Babylon is very flat. It's the the, the plain on the between the Tigris and Euphrates River in the modern nation state of Iraq. And Babylon is real flat, and there's no natural stone there. So all the stone that he would have to build with had to be imported. So brick-making became very important, and they built made a lot of bricks, and his name was on all the bricks. And uh, so he built out of bricks this giant kind of pyramid-like structure that had gardens in it that seemed to hang in midair um, above the city of Babylon. Babylon is also the place where the Tower of Babel happens. Um, the In Genesis, many, many, many years before. But it is the cradle of civilization in many ways. We think of most of the things that come from the ancient world into the rest of the world, they do come from Babylon. One of the reasons for this, in the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond kind of has a theory of why why Babylon, why does the Mesopotamian, the land between the rivers, literally, why does Mesopotamia become the first cradle of what we later would call civilization, large cities, Uh, It is the cultivation of the wheat plant, of wheat and other grains like barley, but primarily the wheat plant that allows um, a large population to exist. Um, Hunter-gatherer societies, tribal groups, whatever we call them, that had to hunt for meat and and then subsist on other uh, foods that they gathered. Those kind of... uh, communities had a lot harder time feeding everybody because eventually you run out of animals to kill in the wild and you run out of berries to eat. There's not a lot of naturally occurring food in the world that just kind of grows without human cultivation. Most of the food products that we eat called vegetables today are carefully cultivated over a long period of time to produce bigger, uh, you know, fruit. Um, if you look at a the original plant that makes up the corn plant today, the ears were really, really small. Same with bananas, same with just about every um, 
plant you can tree you can imagine the almond tree is originally poisonous but it was cultivated to not be poisonous um, so we could eat the almonds apparently there's a new um, phenomena of almond moms i don't know if you're an almond mom or not but um i guess it's a a, a parallel to wine moms but um a healthier version of a wine mom again we come up with these terms to talk about to define ourselves by food, but really the the world of Mesopotamia was defined by food. The cultivation of wheat, similar to the cultivation of rice in China and Asia, um, but in the Mesopotamian Valley. And what happens when you cultivate a lot of food, like from a wheat product that's harvested year after year, like they do in Egypt, um, eventually you can support a really large population. And a large population can support experts, not everybody has to work in the fields every day. Some people can be diplomats and soldiers and other functionaries like clerks and merchants and, uh, and astrologers and astronomers. And you can have all these different professions in a society that has enough food. If you don't have enough food, everybody has to devote themselves to getting enough food every day. And so that's the world of Nebuchadnezzar. It is the the pinnacle of civilization as we know it, of military power, just about everything. And, and yet, there is one thing that Nebuchadnezzar can't do, and that is interpret this dream. Daniel tells him what the dream is, and it is a, it is a really disturbing dream. Dreams kind of are like that, aren't they? They're fairly disturbing when we remember them. There is this different kinds of metal on this great statue, um, this huge statue. It's frightening. It's the statue of a person. It doesn't say what kind of person it is. It's just really huge. Um, Really huge statue of a person set up. The head is fine gold. um, And, you know, it's hard to imagine that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think of himself as the head of gold. Um, immediately when he hears this. Then the, the, uh, all the way down the statue, we go from fine metals or precious metals to less precious metals. Till at the very bottom, we find at the feet and toes this mixture of iron and clay, or iron, clay, bronze, or really just iron and clay at the bottom. So it is a very unstable statue. This, this statue does... Um, symbolize the nations of the world, the nation states, the powers of the world. And we know that they are very unstable. Um, All we need to do is read human history to know how unstable civilization is. And Daniel knew that firsthand. The great civilization and kingdom that he was part of as a child was overthrown and he was sent into exile. He had no illusions that that any kingdom can last forever. The interpretation, um, uh, the interpretation of the dream is about Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, all our dreams are about us. Um, They're about real people. Uh, And this is no different. God is talking to Nebuchadnezzar directly through this dream. It's kind of neat that God would do that. Um, this king who has done so much damage to the people of God, who has destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem, 
And yet God wants to talk to him. God is always keeping the lines open for communication. Um, That seems to be a kind of love that we maybe don't fully understand. The way God loves people, even in their destructiveness and wickedness. But there, um, there, this, this, uh, the next kingdom that will come after him, I, I can't imagine Nebuchadnezzar likes this information that there will come a kingdom after him. Uh, and yet, he is ruler over all, but the head of gold, after the head of gold, another kingdom inferior shall arise of silver and then of bronze, and they'll rule over the whole earth. And then the fourth kingdom is strong as iron. Um, a lot of people who are cynical about prophetic stuff um, would date this prophecy to a much l- more recent time. Because when you see a prophecy that sort of describes things accurately, they would say, that can't be true. They must have said it after the fact. Kind of like when, um, who won the Super Bowl this year? I forget. Um when the team wins the Super Bowl, you know, you only get credit if you predicted it a year ago. You don't get credit if you predict the winner of the Super Bowl after the game is over. Um, and per- But prophecy really does work that way. Um, if Daniel is a prophet, which it, he says he is, says he is here, um, he has this ability to see the future. Does God have the ability to see the future? I would think so. Um, that's what God claims again and again. So to be a person of faith is to believe that this is even possible, that there could be this foreknowledge of the things yet to come. And, and, you know, we might have to convince ourselves of that in the modern world, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't need to be convinced of that. He knew that Daniel was a prophet and Daniel knew these things. Uh, many looked at this this sort of table of nations or um, sort of timeline of history with the gold head of Babylonia that Nebuchadnezzar's head of. And then the next one is silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. In the life of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, we see this takeover happen that um, Nebuchadnezzar's heir, uh, Belshazzar, is overthrown by, I think it's Darius, the Mede, the Medo-Persian Empire, then becomes the dominant force of in the ancient world. Uh, Medo-Persia is the modern nation-state of Iran. Um, many people from Iran that were refugees after the overthrow of the Shah of Iran uh, here in, came to America and established themselves here in, in the United States and often will refer to them as themselves as Persian instead of as Iranian, um, many because of the tensions and lots of other reasons, I'm sure. But Persian people are still here, still around. But the Medo-Persian Empire, Media and Persia, there's not really a media anymore. There is Medo-Persia takes over. Darius the Mede. It is Darius, who is also known as King Ahasuerus, who fights against the 300 Spartans in the movie Sparta. I think, or 300 Spartans, or 300, the movie 300, um, in the um, Persian, or Peloponnese, not Peloponnesian, but uh, Persian War, where the 300 Spartans resist Xerxes, um, Ahasuerus, or Darius, uh, 
um, the Mede, who then in defeat goes back to, he's really defeated in a naval battle, not a, he wins the battle at the, the pass in Thermopylae where the modern marathon comes from, that running race that we all still do, um, comes from that, that battle um, of marathon um, shortly after Thermopylae. And, and he goes back in defeat and then marries Esther. And the story of Esther happens in the Medo Persian Empire there in um, Shushan, I think it is. But it's a similar takeover. It's a takeover from Nebuchadnezzar that Medo Persia does. The next kingdom that is predicted seems to be, he doesn't say it here, is Alexander the Great, who then conquers Persia and Babylon and establishes his kingdom there um, and dies there too at the age of 33, Alexander the Great. Um, he weeps because there are no more worlds to conquer. But Alexander takes over the world. And through that takeover, the Greek language and Greek culture is spread all over the world. And wherever you go in the world, in the ancient world, all the way to India, you'll find cities named Alexander, Alexandria. And in the New World as well, Alexandria, Virginia, was not founded by Alexander the Great, but was a tribute to him in that way. And then comes iron, the age of iron. Um, Rome is iron, this uh, very strong, brutal force in the world. Using Greek technology and philosophy and learning, but military power that is unmatched by anybody. And Rome becomes that um, becomes that power in the world that nobody can can handle. And then the uh, the feet are um, the 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 uh, the, um, the the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, a divided kingdom. Some of the strength of the iron shall be in it. Um, this is hard to know what this is, but this is probably the, the aftermath of Rome, the aftermath of Rome that happens. Rome doesn't last forever. It, there's the, when we talk about the, um, the attempts to revive Rome have been many. Um, the Second Reich, um, Charlemagne, tries to revive the Holy Roman Empire, and he does that pretty effectively um, in the Middle, middle Ages. Um, and then um, the Third Reich under Hitler it is an attempt to revive Rome um, uh, in an awful way with that military power. Um, all the... Um, oh, yes. Just a moment. Yes, hello. Hi. Hi. I was wondering if you're almost done charging or... Oh. Are you... Do you need me to leave? No, no. I said if you are done charging. Are no, you... no. I just... I'm still charging. Okay. Okay. Do you know how long it's... Um, I have three hours to do it. Uh, but I'll probably be here another 40 minutes or so. Okay. Is uh, that okay? Sure. Did you need to charge? I do, yeah. But that's okay. I can't. Okay. I don't know where these folks are. Yeah. Yeah. Probably another 40 minutes. 
All right, um, we're back. I'm here at a car charger. There's not enough car chargers in the world. So anyway, all these kingdoms um, rise and then fall. And the final one is this aftermath of the Roman Empire um, that um, then is... Uh, destroyed by this this stone that comes uh, cut from a mountain, but not with hands. This is the the um, stone that the builders rejected, but has come become the chief cornerstone. Um, many Christians today and Christians for two thousand years, including the ones in the New Testament, saw this prophecy as being Jesus. Um, that Daniel is predicting the Messiah who will come and destroy the kingdoms of the world uh, with all their pomp and prestige and power um, are no match for the Messiah that comes in love and shatters all of these kingdoms. Uh, and I think there's some real truth to that, that um, even Rome with all its power ends up changing and uh, and losing its power to the crucified Savior. But this also shows that all the attempts that we try to do to um, create safety and security and power and might uh, don't really work. Uh, all kingdoms fall. All castles are really just sand castles. All the things we do to protect ourselves from uncertainty and chance ultimately um, don't really work because ultimately we are subject to forces that we cannot fully know about. Um, it doesn't mean we don't plan for the future and have savings accounts and try to be f- responsible financially and in life and make good decisions and all those things. But ultimately recognizing that um, that that all of the, the ways we try to create safety don't really work, that ultimately all of our safety is found in God, the stone that the builders rejected, the stone cut from the mountain, not made with hands, crushes all these materials. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes this, and he suddenly falls on his feet and worships Daniel in response to this. He worships the one true and living God through Daniel. He hasn't quite gotten the whole thing yet. But he realizes that Daniel speaks for God. And I think part of our prophetic message today as the church is to to witness to this and say, all the structures that we build that we think are permanent really really aren't. Um, All of the, um, even when we think about a church building, we're trying to build a permanent church that'll be here for 300, 400,000 years. Um, All of those attempts for permanency are are ultimately just like these kingdoms. They rise and fall. They fall and they rise. So it is with our lives as well. The vision of the, the church and the reading from Sunday, the upper room, is that it is a borrowed upper room. Ultimately, all the things we do are from God and are subject to um, God. And whenever something becomes so powerful that it starts to hurt people, starts to become just a statue for people to worship as it does here in the, this prophecy. The uncut stone 
uh, the, the stone not made with human hands comes and breaks all those things down. So put your trust in God today. Don't trust anything that you can see as a statue to greatness. Ultimately, God is the stone that will roll through. We trust the stone. We trust the one who made the stone without hands. Um, And that is who Nebuchadnezzar gets a glimpse of, that all of his pomp and circumstance and all of his power and prestige is really nothing when it comes to the way God works in the world. And he has this glimpse of that. So I hope we can get a glimpse of that today to reassure ourselves that in the uncertainties of life, we can trust God for everything, to meet our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what we need. That's what God will give us. And all this other stuff will come at the right time, in the right way. But ultimately, being thankful, being uh, accepting this great gift from God, which is life, is the thing that Nebuchadnezzar had to figure out through this dream. Amen. I will sing to the Lord, for he is lofty and uplifted. The horse and its rider has he hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my refuge. The Lord has become my savior. This is my God, and I will praise him. The God of my people, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a mighty warrior. Yahweh is his name. The chariots of Pharaoh and his army has he hurled into the sea. The finest of those who bear armor have been drowned in the Red Sea. The fathomless deep has overwhelmed them. They sank into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in might. Your right hand, O Lord, has overthrown the enemy. Who can be compared with you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in renown, and worker of wonders? You stretched forth your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. With your constant love, you led the people you redeemed. With your might, you brought them in safety to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mount of your possession, the resting place you have made for yourself, O Lord, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hand has established. The Lord shall reign forever and forever. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, 
but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.